Well, that's a lot to live up to now. That really, uh, that really goes both ways. I, uh, I love Pastor Trent and uh, his family, and uh, I love Zion. I'm glad to be here today, and I have already uh, said this earlier in the lesson on leadership, but I want to say it to you as a church body. I want to commend you for the maturity and the wisdom and the generosity for uh, letting Trent and Pam take this sabbatical. Um, it speaks volumes of you, and, uh, and I'm just grateful for it. The second uh, Trent mentioned the possibility, which was over a year ago now, of doing this, maybe two years ago now, um, I, was, I was so excited for him, but also for you. And uh, so uh, Donna said earlier, you guys are doing a great job. Or was that Jacob? Someone said, uh, you're doing a great job, and I agree. So thank you. We are going to continue the series today on uh, the fruit of the Spirit. And so uh, I'm going to invite your attention to Galatians chapter 5 and read this passage. That's not OCD or anything, I promise. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and as Jesus taught us, your word is truth. So, Father, as we peer into this today, help us to see something that we've not seen before, to grow in ways that we've not grown before, to be challenged in our hearts, to come away loving Jesus just a little bit more, as we sang, to be a little more like Jesus and a little less like me. And, Father, I pray for your blessings upon Trent and Pam. I pray for your blessings upon Zion. I pray for your goodness and your kindness to rain down upon them, and may it be so evident in their lives that others are drawn to love you too. We love you, and we're so grateful for your love for us. Amen. Do you know, as I read uh, this passage, I can't help but think, and oftentimes I even confuse the language uh, the passage where Paul ta- the passages where Paul talks about uh, the gifts of the Spirit, spiritual gifts. And this passage puts it in terms of fruit, but there is a real difference. There's a distinction between those. And here's what I want to say the distinction is. Um, when, when I give you a gift, that gift is a transaction. It's one and done. Now, I may give you more than one gift, but the truth is uh, there's no obligation other than gratitude that's created on your part when you receive a gift. And we all have received gifts from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. But when the New Testament talks about fruit, 
When Jesus says to his disciples, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you and set you apart, ordained you, that you should go forth and bear fruit. Uh, when, when the Bible talks about fruit, it's always talking about not, not the cosmic crisp apple that we might buy down at the grocery store. It's talking about the, the living, breathing tree that's bearing fruit. And so when we're, when we're thinking about fruit, we're not talking about something that I give to you the, or the Holy Spirit gives to you and that's done. Fruit is something that you have to cultivate. It's an ongoing obligation to maintain it and prune it and uh, feed and water it so that it grows and develops and becomes even more fruit. Some of you are aware, I mentioned a couple of years ago when I was here, that uh, my wife and I have bought a piece of property here. And I'm pleasantly surprised as we've cut back some of the uh, overgrowth uh, on the property, as we've cut it back, I've discovered I have some apple trees. I have a pear tree. You can't imagine my excitement. If you could grow peaches here in Pennsylvania, I'd be even more excited. I don't know that that's possible. But, uh, but I have those down south where I live now. And, uh, you know, you've got to get out there and, and uh, take care of that tree and take care of that fruit. It's not doing so well if the whole property is overgrown, right? And it's the same way with these fruits of the Spirit that are being spoken of here. Do you know every one of you, if you are in Christ and have the Spirit of God in you, you have in you some degree of love, some degree of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You have those things in you. And you might look at yourself and say, well, I'm not really seeing that. I'm not really seeing that. Or you might look at this passage and try to pick one out. Well, I have the fruit of love. No, that's not the way this works. You have all of these trees in your garden. By the gift of the Holy Spirit, you have all of these things. And if you look at yourself and think, well, you know, I'm really not as patient as I need to be, then you've just answered your own question. What that means is you have that in you, but now you have the obligation to cultivate that to develop that, to exercise that, to grow in that particular area. Now today we're here to talk about this one particular fruit of the Spirit that is goodness. And when I first read this passage years and years ago, I thought, well, that doesn't really fit in the rest of this list. I realize that's kind of silly, but, uh, but I thought, well, you know, Goodness is sort of this umbrella category that really sort of sums up all these other things. A person who has love and joy and peace and patience, etc., etc. Well, that's a good person. That's what goodness is. 
But the reality is, goodness that is being described here as a fruit of the Spirit is its very own distinct category. It's its own fruit. And it was only after I really studied this that I understood that and thought, oh, that really is saying something meaningful and deep and different. So let's talk about that today. What is goodness as a fruit of God's Spirit? Well, first of all, no extra charge, I promise you, but I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson today because this passage is written in Greek. And I know I hate to do that uh, because uh, word studies are often just meant to fill up time or something like that, but no, this word is rich. The word that is used here is agothosini. Agothosini. Um, many of you have heard the uh, Old Testament uh, or the, uh, the name from a previous generation. We don't use some of these names very much anymore, but uh, Agatha Christie. And you wonder, where in the world did they come up with a name like Agatha? It's, it's Greek, and it means good. And so uh, one of the hints to what goodness is that is being described here is this word that he uses. And it takes... A, uh, a word, agathos, which means good. Now, you and I might use that word uh, good to describe any number of things. You might have a cup of cold water and say, oh, that was good. Or um, you, might, you might look at a piece of art or something your children have produced, and you might say, oh, that's good. That's really good. Um, but this is describing uh, a quality of something. And so there's this little ending at the end of this word, agathosine. Now that S-Y-N there, you should recognize that because we use that word a lot as a, um, the beginning, a prefix of a word. We might talk about a synonym. And a synonym is a word that means the same thing as another word. It is linked to a different word. Two words, same meaning, synonyms. Or we use this word more often if you sync your devices. And that's not S-I-N-K, that's S-Y-N-C. You're, you're coordinating those devices so that they match up. They're being synchronized. And so what this is telling us is this isn't just good like a cup of water would be good. This is a synchronized Good. Something that is linked to something else. And do you know what it's linked to? It's linked to the very goodness of God himself. Now we say it all the time, don't we? And we've even developed a, a sort of mantra and a, a response to that. God is good. All the time. God is good. That doesn't just mean, and I hear people use that sometimes, and uh, as a pastor, you know, I get a little bit uh, piqued in my, in my curiosity, but also, you know, I, I want to help people understand. They'll say, uh, you know, we were facing this terrible situation, and God intervened, and uh, God did something very nice for us, and then they will say, God is good. And then I want to say, well, God is good all the time. 
That means even if it didn't work out the way you thought it should have worked out, even if there wasn't that outcome that you think is a good outcome, still God is good. Because we're not just describing something that God has done, we're describing God's very essence. The very nature of God himself is good. And that's why in the account of creation, God makes all these things. And every day when he creates something, he looks at it and says, this is good. It is not by accident that it is good. It is good because God made it. God who is good produces what is good. So when we're talking about this goodness here that is a fruit of the Spirit of God, we're talking about the very goodness of God himself who is good in his very being, in his essence. Now that can be hard for us. And do you know why that's hard for us? Because we are not good in our very nature. Now this is hard for some people to hear, especially in our day and time, because there is a cultural belief in humanism. The cultural belief is that people are essentially good. They are good in their very nature. And I think perhaps one of the most famous quotes on this subject comes from Anne Frank, who is in hiding from the Nazis in Germany because Jewish people are being exterminated at an alarming rate. Six million European Jews killed during World War II. And yet Anne Frank writes in her diary that was later published by her father, she writes, I still believe in spite of everything that people are truly good. Now, I look at that and my heart goes out to Anne Frank and to her family and to all who suffered under that regime. But the truth of the matter is that's, that's the wishful, hopeful enthusiasm of a young lady rather than a reasoned, considered thought. And here's what I mean by that. For you to believe in the essential goodness of human beings, that human beings are good by nature, you really do have to believe that in spite of everything. Because everything we see is to the contrary. You look at the world and the state of the world and human cruelty to other human beings, and the incivility, and the coarseness, and the greed, and the warring, and the destruction, and the terror. You cannot come away with the thought that human beings are good at their very core. The Bible teaches us something very different. The Bible teaches us that we were created good by God who is good, but that we stepped out of that goodness by rebelling against God himself. 
and our disobedience brought us into a state of nature and from that uh, a state of nature of sin and from that point forward all who are born from Adam we have a sinful nature and the point of the gospel is that Jesus Christ can change our very nature and he who was by nature good because he himself was God in the flesh, he suffered in our place to redeem us when we could not redeem ourselves because our very nature was fallen. It's not just that human beings sometimes do bad things. It's that left to our own devices, we will always choose the wrong. We will always choose to be selfish. We will always choose greed. And so it is that we have to teach children to share. We have to teach children to tell the truth. We have to teach children to be good. Now, the Bible also teaches that human beings are capable of doing good. We are capable of doing good. And I think when most people say that, uh, or when people say that they believe in the essential goodness of mankind, I think what they're recognizing in is that uh, human beings have the capacity to do good things. But it's a far cry from believing that I have the capacity to do good things than from believing that I'm essentially good in my very nature. It's the difference between saying, I can catch a football and saying, I can play for the Pittsburgh Steelers. They're two very different things. They vary by degree. Scripture recognizes that human beings may do acts which are kind or charitable, selfless, even noble. Why? Because we are made in God's image. And so we still have vestiges of that goodness. But for those who are in Christ, the Spirit of God Himself who is good is dwelling in us and something is happening in us. So God possesses a goodness which is holy. It is completely different from ours. God does not simply do what is good from time to time. He does what is good always. And he does what is good not in opposition to his nature, but in perfect harmony with his nature. When God does what is good, he is simply being himself. His free exercise of his nature is always good. If human beings freely exercised our human, fallen, sinful nature, unthinkable, unthinkable. So all matters concerning God's very character are good. His name is good. His thoughts are good. His will is good. His purposes are are good and that's how we can be told that God is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose
So what we're being told in this passage by this choice of words is that God who is good in his very nature and in every aspect of his being is working in us to transform us and make us like himself. He's transforming us to be like him. He's taking us from being these fallen sinful creatures who may be capable of good but who struggle, as Paul says in Romans 7, to do it. Even when I know to do good, I find myself not doing it, he says. He's taking us from being fallen creatures who may be capable of good but who struggle with it to being creatures who are like him, good in our very essence, good in our very nature, and therefore we do good not in spite of our nature, but because of our nature. And God hastened the day when we see that fulfilled in our lives at the coming of the Lord Jesus, <coughs> when we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I hate to ask, but if someone could uh, retrieve me a bottle of water, Jacob, thank you so much. I'd be grateful. I only cough when I'm making really good points, and Satan wants to distract you, so, so uh, hang on here. But here's what the Bible says. <clears throat> For those whom God foreknew, and that knowing is not head knowledge, that's heart knowledge. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Thank you so much. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Some of you know the name uh, J. Vernon McGee, who uh, had a through the Bible study, and he used to say... Uh, God is so pleased with his son that he has decided to make a world full of people look just like him. And that, that's what this scripture is saying. Uh, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his dear son. So just as God is good, Father is good, Son is good, Holy Spirit is good in very essence, in their very nature. He's making you that way too. Don't you long for that? Aren't you ready for that? Aren't you tired of struggling with the sin that remains in this world and remains even in us? Won't you rejoice for the day when that is eradicated and Jesus' victory is complete and it is shown in you? And you don't have to second guess your own motives. And you don't have to think twice. You'll always do what's right by your neighbor. And always do what's right by God. Because that will then be your nature. You will be like him. He's transforming you into the image of his good son. Now, what are the components of goodness? And we could probably stay here a long time talking about this, but I'm not going to do that. Um, I want to talk about 
specific components that I think are essential to goodness um, as we live our lives here in this earth. First of all, there is what I call the moral component of goodness. And here's what I mean by that. We're essentially talking here about virtue. She's a good person basically means that she doesn't lie, doesn't steal, doesn't cheat, doesn't hurt other people, admits when she's wrong, tries to make things right, tries to fix things, and tries to help other people, right? So when we say, you know, uh, this person is a good person, we're talking about virtue. Now, there are some areas of confusion here because of our evangelical theology. And here's what I mean by that. Look, we've had it drummed into us, and it's absolutely true, according to Scripture, um, that we are just sinners. And we have a fallen nature. And there is none who does good. No, not one. That's not Keith. That's the Bible. And... and um, that we cannot do anything to merit our salvation. And so there are people who take that thought to an illogical extreme and think, well, I'm just, I'm just a broken down sinner. I can't be good. I'll never be good. I just have to rely on Jesus to save me. And while there is a truth to that. There is a kernel of truth there. But that takes that truth in a wrong direction. And here's what I mean by that. The truth is, it's not just that I'm a broken down, beaten down, wretched sinner. I am a sinner saved by grace. And so... If you go to either extreme in that statement, I'm just a sinner, I'm just a sinner, I'm just a sinner, and all you ever focus on is the sinful nature that we still have to deal with, you're not recognizing that the Spirit of God now lives in your heart and is doing something for you and is transforming you and changing you. You're not just a sinner. You are a sinner saved by God's grace. And if we just emphasize, well, I'm saved by grace, I'm saved by grace, I'm saved by grace, then you'll find someone who becomes licentious. They'll just act any way they want to act. And there's no moral quality to their lives, or they're taking their morality from the culture of the world, or they're taking their morality uh, from what is convenient in the moment, or whatever works best for them. And there's a morality there, but it's a pragmatic reality, not a spiritual reality. And the truth is, biblical Christianity can't be conflated with morality. In other words, we're not just trying to get the world to act nice and to be good and to behave. We're trying to woo them in to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who can save us from sin. 
And all the efforts to just inflict biblical morality on people who are not followers of Christ is just frustrating as all get out. And you see this in the political environment that exists in our day and time. Just trying to take people who need a relationship with Christ and instead satisfy ourselves with making them good moral people. That kind of moralism is deadly. But it's equally as deadly. You can't conflate Christianity with mere morality. But you also cannot divorce Christianity from a biblical morality. God himself tells us over and over. In fact, so much of the Bible is not doctrinal. It's very practical. It's saying, this then is how you should live in light of the reality that Jesus has saved you and the Spirit of God now dwells in you and you are working, uh, he, you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling, here's how your life should look. And so there's a moral component to goodness. And so if you look at your life and you're not following a biblical morality then that's something you need to take up with your Heavenly Father. That's something you need to talk about and say, Lord, increase in me this fruit of goodness. Help me to cultivate that gift that you have given me, this tree that is in my garden now. Help me to cultivate that. There's another component that I call the integrity component. And notice I'm using words that aren't here in this list of the fruits of the Spirit. So you see how distinct goodness is. It doesn't say uh, that the fruit of the Spirit is morality. And it doesn't say that the fruit of the Spirit is integrity. But you can't have goodness without the integrity component. You know what integrity is? There's a common definition. I think it's a great definition. I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I'll just stick with it. Integrity is doing the right thing no matter the consequences to self and no matter who is watching. If you're all by yourself, no one is ever going to see, no one is ever going to know, you still choose to do the right thing. That's integrity. Now God has that to a perfect degree, doesn't he? God always does the right thing. It's because God has integrity. He is good. <clears throat> and the integrity component is, it doesn't matter what the consequences are to me, I'm going to do the right thing. Do you know, um, for uh, a few years, I actually taught as an adjunct at a seminary, and I taught the uh, subject of Christian ethics. And you know what I discovered? These are people preparing for pastoral ministry and I discovered that most of them came to that class with an ethic of pragmatism. That is, I'm going to figure out what I think the outcome is going to be, and then I'm going to do what I think needs to be done to accomplish the outcome that I think needs to happen. And so I would uh, use what's called the Socratic method. I would just give them hypotheticals and ask them questions and put them in hypothetical situations where they then had to apply their ethic. And uh, it didn't take long before they were willing to lie if that's what needed to be done in order to accomplish something that 
was a good outcome. They'd be willing to steal if they really had to, to accomplish. And, and I was, my, my whole goal, my overarching goal for this entire class was to get them to say, no, it is written. I will not do what I think in my own limited mind. I will not do what I think needs to be done to accomplish the outcome that I think is the best outcome here. I will do what God says to do. It is written. And uh, the integrity component is when you do what is right, no matter the consequence to self. Do you know uh, in the Bible, in the Psalms, the question is asked, who shall uh, stand in the presence of the Lord? Who will ascend his holy hill? Who's going to do that? And then there's a list of uh, seven things that a person in the presence of God will do. And do you know what one of them is? The King James Version says, he gives an oath to his hurt. Do you know what that means? That means I gave you my word, and now I'm looking back and realizing that this is not to my advantage. I'd rather break my contract. That would be to my advantage. But I promised. I gave an oath. And even though it's going to cost me something, even though it's not to my advantage, I'm going to follow through. I'm going to do it. That's integrity. And so what that psalm is saying is that this person who is in the presence of the Lord is going to show that kind of integrity. Third component I want to talk about is a giving component. God acts for your best interest. God will often act against his own best interest, or seemingly so. For instance, here's what I mean by that. Don't take that to an extreme and make me say something I'm not saying. So, Here's what I mean by that. When Jesus took on flesh and came to this earth to suffer the indignity of being treated like a criminal when he was the only truly innocent person who ever lived, um, look, he didn't give up his glory that he always had with the Father from all eternity. He, he didn't give that up for his sake. He gave that up for your sake. And you better be glad that he did. I sure am glad that he did. Um, and so, God will do what is in your best interest. And goodness is often acting selflessly in the interest of others. Now, can I tell you, uh, as a pastor, as a pastor for 25 years, and I can't tell you the number of times that I saw this and I knew what I was seeing. I, um, you know, I had a group of people who didn't want any fanfare. Um, they, didn't, they didn't want any recognition. Um, but when I faced situations, someone had come to me and there's a need and I don't need to make this public. I need to deal with this privately. Uh, for, the, for the sake of this person who has this particular need, there were always people I could call and say, you know what, I need to raise $1,000 and I can't even tell you who it's for or what it's about, but would you be willing to help? Sure, Keith. 
put me down for a couple of hundred dollars. I always had those people, and I never, not one time, faced a situation where those needs did not get met because God's people suddenly got stingy. Stingy people aren't God's people. God's not stingy, and neither are his people. And uh, I even had a situation one time that I'm willing to talk about now openly, but I had a young lady who had a particular need. Um, She had an eating disorder. And uh, I was in a conference call with all kinds of people representing different agencies in this county and down in Pittsburgh and at a hospital down in Pittsburgh and, and so forth. And they were trying to cobble something together to, to help her. And they were saying, we can do this program, um, but we can't do that program because our agency won't cover this. Or we can transport her, but we can't transport her across county lines. Or we could house her, but we can't house her down in Pittsburgh. And I listened to this until my head was about to explode. And then finally, I just said, I I need to ask you a question. I said, I appreciate all of you. I really do. Sincerely, I do. And I realize you've got limitations as to what you're able to do. But there's a question that hasn't been answered in these last 30 minutes, and it's this. What is the very best thing that could happen for this young lady? What, what would work best for her? And someone said, well, the very best thing for her would be to be in this inpatient program that we have at this hospital in Pittsburgh, um, but she would need to be down here for 30 days and she would need transportation because she would have to check in every morning and check out every evening and have some place to stay and she would need housing. And, and between all that these agencies could provide, they couldn't do that. They just couldn't do that. And I said, listen, I truly do appreciate all that you're trying to do. And you're limited by your organizations and by your agencies and your protocols, and I get that. Um, but I'm not. My boss is the most high God, and I don't have those limitations. Um, I want you to give me a week, and we're going to figure out, if that's the best thing that can happen for this lady, we're going to figure out a way to make that happen. And uh, without any notice, I stood up one Sunday, and I said, there is a need Um, And I'm not going into the depths of the need. I'm not telling you uh, private details that are going to embarrass this person. Um, But I need to raise a significant amount of money. I need to raise $7,500, and I need it by next Sunday. So next Sunday, please come prepared to give. With no more detail than that, that following Sunday the good people at First Baptist Church, about this many people, raised over $7,500 to help this person. Do you know why? Because they're good. That's why. It's the Holy Spirit in them, making them generous for the sake of others. And that goodness of God coming out in the lives of his people. And then 
One last component that I want to talk about is a growing component. This is fruit. It's a tree. Um, if you've ever planted a sapling fruit tree, you know, you know there's about seven years there where you take the fruit off of the tree. You don't want it bearing fruit because you want all that energy to go into developing the trunk and the branches of the tree. And so you, you prune the fruit off of it so that in year eight, you get more peaches than you know what to do with. You're, you're canning peaches. You're giving peaches away to people. You're doing everything. You're making peach pancakes, and you're making peach waffles, and you're, you're making peach ice cream. You're making peach everything. everything. Everything in the month of July is peach in South Carolina. And that's because you cultivate that. It's growing. Is the gift of goodness growing in you? If not, what can you do to be growing this gift? Everyone sitting here knows someone, and if I said, I want you to identify for me a saint in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you see this evidence of the Holy Spirit, you see goodness just oozing out of them, Every one of you could name somebody, right? Do you know you can be that person too? A generation from now, young people can say, yeah, I know someone like that. And your name, your face is what's in their mind. You're the one they're thinking of. So let's, let's go over some applications here. I, I want to give you two strategies for cultivating not just the gift of goodness, all of these fruits of the Spirit of God. One is discipleship. And by that I mean follow a good person. Or if it's patience, follow, imitate a patient person. Recognize that... Uh, fruit, growth in them, and then you do it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I'll tell you what I think that means. You know, if, if, if I'm in a marathon, now look, I'm 62, I'm not going to be in a marathon. Um, you health nuts can do all that stuff, not me. But um, if I were in a marathon, and, and I'm not a world-class runner, I'm not going to win this marathon. But you know what I can set my sights on? There's that guy up there ahead of me. And maybe I can at least catch up to him, right? I think that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I'm in pursuit of Christ. I want to be just like Jesus. And I think about that and I think, you know, until he comes, I'm never going to be like Jesus. That's... It's almost a hopeless thought, isn't it? And I'll just wait for his coming. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to cultivate this gift. So what I can do is I can, I can find someone, maybe a senior saint, maybe someone who just, um, you know, has this as part of their temperament or, or whatever. And I see this in them. And I say, you know what? I'm not where they are. So they're following Christ. I'm going to follow them. I'll at least try to catch up to them. 
greatest pastor I've ever known. Didn't pastor a large church. Wasn't even Baptist. The man was a Presbyterian. <laughs> Most gifted pastor I've ever known. Said more in every 25-minute sermon than I've ever said in any one of my 45-minute sermons. Um, uh, an amazing skill for clarity, able to cover depth quickly and, and easily picked up. And his pastoral skills were just as good as his preaching skills. And on top of all that, he'd never recognize it. He'd never acknowledge it. Probably the most humble and the most gifted man I ever have had the privilege of sitting under his ministry. When I began my ministry, I said, I want to be like Tom Champness. I just want to be like Tom. I want to catch up to him. Now, there's a certain part of me that hesitates to tell you that, and I'll tell you why. I never caught him. I've never caught him. Um, that's because he's still growing too. He's amazing. You know, he didn't quit. He just turned 90 years old and he, and he just won't stop. He's going to grow until he's like Enoch. He, he just isn't here because he walked with God and God took him. That's, that's how he's going to be. So I may never even catch Tom. But I'm not going to quit pursuing. I'm going to keep trying. You can do that too. You can, you can disciple a person who isn't quite as far along as you. You can pair up with them and help them. And if you're that person who needs the help, seek them out. You know people who have all of these fruits in a measure higher than you have them. Go ask them. Can I just sit down for lunch once a month with you or could we grab a cup of coffee or you know whatever it is can we do that and you know what they'll say because they're good sure they're generous and then my second uh, strategy for cultivating this fruit is to plan for growth you know um, I bought a piece of land it's got an apple tree on it Great, I love that. But it's not in great shape, and it's going to need some work. And i got a plan for that. That good growth is not going to happen by accident. It's going to happen because I plan for it to happen. Every year, I try to focus on a Christian virtue that I realize I need to work on. And about two out of every three years, it's patience. But still, you know, I... Um, and I develop a plan. I pray about that specific thing every morning. I read throughout the year something on that specific issue that's going to help me. I will develop a, a mission statement that I want to say in my own private uh, scripture time or uh, study time that I want to say to myself about all these things. So. All I'm really trying to say is plan for that. Map it out. Figure out some way that on December 31, you can be better, you can be farther along than you are today. 
Write that down. Commit to it. Don't just wish for it. Plan for it. And then follow through with the plan. And God will honor that and, and increase the fruit in your life. Now, we're going to uh, sing a closing song, and I'm going to invite, closing couple of songs, I'm going to invite the praise team and the uh, care group leaders to come up. And if you would like to pray with them, you come up and pray with them. If there's an area in your life that you maybe just want to commit to, and say, I, w- I want to throw my hat over the wall. I want, to, I want to tell another person so that I'm obligated to do this. Uh, they'll do that. Come up. They'll pray with you. Um, if I can be of any help to you, I'm going to just sort of stand over here with my family. And um, if I can be of any help to you, come see me. And most of all, if you're here today and you're not seeing any of these fruits because you don't have a relationship with Jesus and therefore His Spirit is not dwelling in your heart and you're not seeing any growth in these things. Look, I want to set you off on the greatest adventure of your life, the greatest adventure of all eternity. I want you to know the Lord Jesus. I'd love to talk to you about that. The, the care group leaders will be happy to talk to you as well, I'm sure. So... Uh, You respond now in whatever way God is leading you.